Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Brian and Ken. Episode number 201, recorded April 25th, 2015. Finishing off our Apes crossover. Yes. The planet of the Apes crossover. The Primate Directive. Very cool. It's just a great idea. And, and I, you know, they even say on the covers of some of them, it's the crossover nobody expected. And, you know, it's kind of true. I didn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think we mentioned this before. None of us expected it, but we're sure enjoying it. Yeah. yeah and uh, Dana Gould is making the point in some of his essays about how similar these uh, two properties are, these two franchises. And he's right. Right. Yeah, I like how in the essays he, he talks about how really dissimilar they are. And yet they both struck the same chord and are remembered. Yeah. Peanut butter and chocolate. It's amazing. <laughs> Uh, peanut butter and chocolate. Yes, they go oh. together. It's almost, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost like bacon. It's amazing. Uh, okay. So when you guys were reading this, do you guys just have this, the episode of The Simpsons going through your head where they do the Planet of the Apes musical? <laughs> oh, no, because I've never seen that. I have oh, you're kidding. No. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, it's Planet it's of the Apes musical. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what episode it is, but yeah, they, there's a Planet of the Apes musical and Troy McClure, who's in the you know, <laughs> first couple episode seasons, mm-hmm. uh, he's playing Taylor. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, 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 That's it's great. great. Yeah. yeah, I had the soundtrack. <laughs> I have the soundtrack and, uh, the Simpsons and the, and those songs are in there and they're, they're just so funny. You, you know, Dana Gould was a producer on the Simpsons. I wonder if oh, he I bet he had something to do with that. Had one. anything to do with that? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a whole song about Doctor Zayas. So every time he shows up <laughs> or they say his name, I'm like Doctor Zayas, Doctor Zayas, Doctor Zayas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Now I know what I need to get before the weekend's out. Okay. There you go. Yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll tell you what episode and season it is, so help you find it faster. Thanks. But anyways, so, uh, all right, well, I guess I'll just jump into the episode or issue four. Okay, before you do that, I have to mention this, though. If oh, yeah, I we were, haven't even let you talk yet. Sorry. If I were just a listener on the podcast this week, and you just promised, Ken, that you would find that particular episode of The Simpsons, but I, as the listener, couldn't find out what it was, hmm. I would be really bummed. So, I think you need to uh, promise listeners that next week you will have that information for you. Nah, I'm not going to promise nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you just say you'll post it on the site? I don't really like them very much. I'm not going to do that either. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Hold on, I'll, I'll, oh. find it now. I'll find it right this second so that they don't have to wait. Yeah. I've got many of the seasons of Simpsons on home, back, back home on DVD because the kids loved the Simpsons when, when they were growing up. Right. Even as I sit here, I think I am getting a sort of memory of this. Did, did it have a like a stage show with the the Statue of Liberty? Yeah, either dropping yeah it was down, it was a Broadway from, it was a Broadway from, type show. Yeah, it was a Broadway show, and they were there. I did it, see that hmm. in Springfield? 
yeah, it was off Broadway. It was off okay. Broadway. All right, I got it. Yes, that episode was 147, entitled A Fish Called Selma, and it was a season seven episode of The Simpsons. Wow. That is an interesting title. That sounds like it has nothing to do with the play. <laughs> well, Troy McClure is dating Selma, which is Marge's sister, and that's the reason why the Simpsons are invited to Oh, the I got it. Oh, I got it. Okay, that's the tie-in. Yeah. And, and by uh, the way, that Troy McClure character, love that. Was that Dan Hartman or probably yeah, somebody? Uh, Was that Dan Hartman? Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman, sorry. Yeah. Wow. Okay, 147. Right. It was written by Jack Barth, so uh, not written by Dana Gould, but he might have had something to do with it, though. Cool. And to all the thousands of listeners, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they've they've already watched that episode. They're way ahead of us. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably my favorite episode of The Simpsons, just because of the the music and the... uh, You just got to watch it. I I don't want to spoil it for you. Wait a minute. Better than the all-you-can-eat fish restaurant? <laughs> I don't remember that one. Where Homer goes in and says, all-you-can-eat, and then starts eating everything, and then the then the pirate guy who's running the fish store says, Arr, he's a remorseless eating machine. <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> Done with All that. Right. So Issue four. Seven. All right, so enough sidetracking. You want to get into the primate directive number four? Please. Indeed. So this is produced by IDW and Boom Studios. The writer is Scott Tipton and David Tipton. Art by Rachel Scott. Color by Charlie Kershoff. Letter by Tom B. Long. Essay by Dana Gould. And published by Sarah Gatos and Daphna Playden. So there's three covers in this one. The normal regular cover shows a large picture of Core, which takes up about three-quarters of the page. And then the bottom right of the page shows Kirk and Taylor battling it out with several gorillas. The subscription cover shows Spock in a caged high chair with two gorilla guards watching and yelling at him. The incentive cover is the Gold Key-inspired cover. It shows a photo of Dr. Zayas with a gorilla general, a photo of Taylor in his astronaut uniform, which at first I thought was Kirk's pajamas from Star Trek The Motion Picture, but it's just uh, the normal Taylor uniform at closer inspection. And then a uh, like a normal shot of the Enterprise. So the story starts off with Taylor and Kirk having put aside their differences from last issue, and Taylor has reluctantly agreed to help stop the Klingons. Everyone beams back down to the planet with Taylor back in his Tarzan uniform and the Enterprise crew wearing what would pass as contemporary street clothes of today. Not sure how this is any less conspicuous than their normal uniforms. They meet up with McCoy, Cornelius, and Zira. Nova has seemed to run off. They all enter the building that houses General Morris's guerrilla troops which is empty at this time because they're all off attacking Ape City. Scotty hits it off pretty well with the chimpanzees, and he starts to tell them all about this slingshot maneuver and how it can be used to go back in time. Later, the Enterprise contacts Kirk to tell him about the army approaching Ape City. Cornelius cannot believe this since the number one rule is ape, not kill ape. 
Zira agrees to be beamed over to Dr. Zayas's location to try to warn the city. Once there, she tells the ape leaders, but they do not believe her until they see the army themselves through their binoculars, or actually little spyglass. General Ursus notices that Morris is wearing a different uniform, and the three agree that they need to meet with the army before it reaches the city. Elsewhere, at Morris's headquarters, a few guerrillas return and find the humans in the building. They shoot one of the red shirts that is there, and a fight quickly ensues. Spock learns that his nerve pinch does not work on the primates, but the guards are eventually brought down. Kirk thinks they've learned enough from the building, and they ride out to the army before Morris can use the Klingon disruptors. In a large field outside the city, Morris's army and Ursus's army stand off. The two leaders ride alone into the middle of the field, and they discuss the situation. Maurice states that the guerrillas are starving outside of the city, and that the government does not do anything to help the common ape. Ursus sticks to the traditions of the past. While they are talking, Kor is watching the events through a scope of a sniper rifle. Feeling that Maurice has lost his nerve, lines up a shot on Ursus and is about to pull the trigger. To be continued. Dum, dum, dum. Dum, dum. So now we find out what's going on and how our heroes may be able to avoid guerrilla takeover that I thought we already saw in Battle for the Planet of the Apes. But that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> or it's it's already happened. Well, right. Sorry. <laughs> this is the This is this is fourteen twelve hundred years, fourteen hundred years later, so This is know. the gorillas taking over from other gorillas. And well, does here's a question, because I in my synopsis well, for the next issue I said the same thing. Does Ursus go out with his own army or does he just go out with a few men to meet meet the other army? Yeah, I thought, never, he, I thought oh, he went ahead. out with a, I thought he went out with a few other men, but ultimately he went to them alone. So I wasn't sure if it was a full army or if it was just, you know, five or six guys. Yeah. Right. They they definitely say it's an inferior force to Marius's. Yep. So we know and I didn't much. mean to say and I didn't mean to say other men. I didn't mean to be racist. I meant other apes. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, watch it. Watch yeah. it, pal. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, so at this point in the story, because I hadn't read issue five yet, I was thinking to myself, Oh. Okay, oh great. So now is this all part of some plot? And now is Ursus going to join with Marius? And now we have even more apes that are going to attack the city. Because I'm looking at all these covers, and the covers are showing, you know, massive conflict, you know. Right. You the, know, the covers big, really massive have, battle. Generally, these covers have very little to do with the actual story. You ain't kidding. I, I think they said to their artists... You know, we're going to do this great crossover. Everybody got really excited, and they went out and just did stuff. You know, I mean, there's no chess game. There's no... <laughs> no! You know, there's no bat lefts. There's no... all, And, exactly. and that's fine. I'm okay with it. Because I, I think they get some great images on those covers. Yeah. So, you know, they were probably all going on simultaneously. The the Tipton brothers were writing, and the artists were doing covers, and, and I'm okay with it. Yeah. At least half of the covers are out of sync with what actually happens in the story. Sure. And those are exactly the ones I was thinking of, too, by the way. The yeah, gorilla yeah. with the bat lift never happened mm -hmm. on top of Spock. Spock and Dr. Zayas having some kind of a chess game never happened, never came close to happening. Right. Spock and, being and captured. Well, and that Spock being captured, now I think we touched on this last week, that image is actually a really nice tribute. And I only know about this because I read about it on Facebook. 
I guess there was a Mego toy or some kind of toy that, you know, was an accessory to the Apes set. And it was this chair cage that Spock is sitting in. Um, oh, really? On number four. And that little thing that Spock is in was an actual toy that you could buy. And some, as I said, they must have gotten really excited about this, and which I love. I love the passion and all this. And they, they made this tribute to that toy by putting it by putting Spock in it on the cover of one of the books. I thought it was great. So you're saying that chair doesn't exist anywhere except for that toy? Yes, that is what I'm saying. Okay, because that chair, I, I thought the chair looked familiar when I when I saw the cover, so maybe I've seen a picture of the toy. I guess. I haven't looked it up or anything. I just heard about it, and uh, I just thought it was uh, a really a really nice, subtle tribute. That's the kind of stuff I just live for. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, when I first saw the chair, I never... I did not recall ever seeing it before. But then I just started looking at it going, that is the oddest thing. Spock is tied up. He's in the chair that looks like it's part wood and part stone. And it's like a cage around just the torso and up. Yeah, like like you couldn't really slide out from... You could slide out from that, couldn't you? Or or the... Well, I don't want to get it. I don't want to get into this, but maybe... or, Or maybe the cage part comes out, the wooden cage part. I don't know but it looks weird. Uh, it definitely is bizarre, but that's probably why it made it, because it was such a weird thing. <laughs> and it was a toy, so why not? Originally. I love it. Very cool. Anyway. Um, I should mention that um, the red shirt that you mentioned, where, it, where he gets shot and they say you have to... What is the actual line? Captain, we're under attack. Handley's been shot. That is also a tribute. Again, this is because I'm on a, a Star Trek you know, group, in a uh, comic book group, on Facebook, and that is a tribute to Rich Handley, who is the co-founder and editor of Hasline Books. Now, those of you who are real planet of the apes aficionados will understand who Hasline is. He is mentioned in the first movie in relation to time travel, and then the character actually appears in Escape from the Planet of the Apes as, I think, uh, what's his name? The guy who plays Victor on The Young and the Restless, uh, Eric Braden, plays... Dr. Hasline, ah. and actually goes, he goes through this sort of like ridiculous idea of what time travel is involved with by a, a painter is painting a picture, and then the painter paints a picture of his picture and, and goes back ad infinitum, and the whole lanes on the highway uh, is what time is like, and you can change lanes. That's Hasline. And um, so Hasline Books was started in part by Rich Hanley, who has also written a couple of books. He wrote The Timeline of the Planet of the Apes, which I have, which is an amazing tribute or a labor of love where he takes every comic book, every novelization, every movie, every episode of every TV series and puts them all in a timeline order. And and it's it's uh, annotated and you can look up exactly what um, you know, what the reference is. Uh, it really is an incredible um, piece of work. He also wrote a thing called Lexicon of the Planet of the Apes, and again, those are all published. So I guess he has connections with the Tipton Brothers and uh, or somebody uh, at IDW, and so his name got put in there. So that it, I don't believe this red shirt actually looks like him, but that's who it is. There ah, you go. That's interesting. That's my story, and, and I'm sticking to it. And he's the guy that was mentioned, I think in Charlton Heston's little monologue at the very beginning of Planet of the Apes. Handley or Hasline? Hasline. Uh, the, the doctor who was theorizing about time travel and things. Correct. That is correct. Because, That's Hasline. That's where the name first comes up. Right. So 
What's interesting about that one is I'm re-watching Planet of the Apes, parts of it, because I hadn't watched it in a long time. And then Taylor's, like, doing the little log before he goes to sleep. And he mentions that doctor. And it's like, what? wait, that's Einstein. I mean, most of what they're talking about, you know, about time being different for a traveler as opposed to stationary people back on the planet, that's pretty much Einstein. And then he's mentioning this totally other person I never heard of. And now I – thank you, Brian. Now I, I know more about what they were on about. Well, I do what I can. And, you know, that the um, it, that's just like NASA is not NASA. It's – what is it? A-S-A-N-S-A or something? It yeah, they, they an change a. it. They change it. Um, I think it's ANS, answer. Yeah, um, so they swapped the first two letters for some reason. Right. Well, the reason was because they couldn't get permission cheaply, at least from NASA, to use their – or they NASA wouldn't let them – you know, use that. Oh, uh, really? Acronym, yeah. And I thought they were trying to do something like it was like some kind of America's something, or maybe a world kind of space organization. But no, they just swapped the first two letters. Huh. Right, and I, and, and, and you know, it, it kind of plays into the whole alternate universe thing, I guess. But that's not why it happened. <laughs> <laughs> Does it ever say what year he's supposed to come from? Well, we assume it's just before nineteen what seventy three when. Um, Escape happens. I think it's seven, early seventies. Escape was set in the time you know it was a present day movie right. when it came out, and so it had to be before that, or maybe it didn't. Time travel, you know. But that's what I, that was always my assumption. Yeah, it's amazing what level of technology we had only like ten years in the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because this was made in like the si- late sixties, sixty eight, sixty seven, whatever. Right. Amazing. Right. Of course, in the original story, they don't necessarily allude to what time it is. It could be any time in the future. Right. I mean, actually, when we – I have to think back. I know that it's, the three, it's like 3,000 and something when they, um, where they land, but where does the, the chronology – the chronometer, chronometer start? Where does that start? Um, and, and do I, we see it from the beginning, you know, because we could tell what, when they left. But maybe by the time we're looking at it, it's already spinning. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't I, I know they definitely have some digital readouts with numbers on them, but I don't remember exactly what what the numbers were. Well, I should go look at my timeline of the Planet of the Apes book because it may say exactly deal with this issue. I'll take a look. So, so does that timeline book deal with all the inconsistencies? Yes, it does. It, you know he it, it, you know he he gives his little uh, pericope, if you will, about the um, you know pericope how, how he places. Wow. <laughs> how he places it, and then underneath, if there's an issue, you know where it, where it contradicts with something, he talks about the conflict and why he chose to resolve it the way he did, as opposed to another way, which may have also been legitimate. So it's like I say, it's exhaustive. Uh, it's really it's really pretty detailed. That would give us all the answers. There you go. Well, I can go get it. It's over in my bedroom. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> <That's all right. laughs> But uh, you know what? I never did notice the ANSA. I always thought it was NASA. No, no, they yeah. they made it look just like it. Hmm. ANSA or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's ANSA. it. It's ANSA. Right. So they switched the S and the A is what it is. Exactly. So did anybody think it was odd that on the cover, the the photo cover of the the gold key looking one, that they used? Uh, Pike's Enterprise and not Kirk's. Oh, because it had the it, it had the famous nipples. 
Good, yes. good catch. <laughs> oh, no, I hadn't noticed that. I thought well, maybe it was just their way of, you know, gold key didn't ever quite look right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> when you first mentioned the nipples on the nacelles, I didn't know what you were talking about. Well, I never <laughs> called them that, so yes, let's just, I thought let's you just did. clear that up. I thought you did. No, that was your thing. <laughs> Not to impugn the good name of Donovan. Wait a minute. Okay, fine. I, I'll let that go, but I do not recall events as you do, sir. I believe they're all recorded, so we can go back and find out. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Okay, fine. One of the things that I noticed in this, more so even than in the other ones, and maybe I was just more attuned to it, I felt like they got the characters really well. Like when Cornelius speaks... It felt like Cornelius, right? Um, you know, and when the the Enterprise crew spoke, the the characters felt genuine. Um, a lot of times in comic books, that level of detail just isn't there. But I really liked the way that they kind of brought the characters to life through the dialogue. I thought it was really good. Agreed, yeah. and I thought they did a great job. I think the artwork also helped with that because when you look into Cornelius's eyes and Sarah's eyes you see, you know, so much expression in their eyes because, you know, they didn't have the... When they were wearing the mask, they didn't have the facial expressions, but somehow in this artwork, they, they really convey that, too, the the expression in the eyes. I thought that was really yeah. good. Yeah, it was well done. I mean, just yeah. simple simple little things like, like uh, Cornelius saying, oh, I have many questions. It just it, it just rings true, you know? <laughs> Reminds you of Rowdy McDowell. And, and the yeah. face looks so much like Rowdy McDowell in the, uh, in the makeup. Very accurate. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing I'm not as crazy about, though, there's a few spots where Scotty's face, where yes. he's mistakenly saying, oops, uh, I shouldn't have said that much. <laughs> I mean, the looks <laughs> on his face are kind of goofy. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, like, Jughead or something <laughs> in the Archie comics. You're always bringing up Archie for, ha for hating him so much. You, you, you sure do talk about him a lot. <laughs> I, I'm just saying. I'm using it as an example. I mean, the look on Scotty's face is kind of like, it's, it's like in the background, it's going to play, you know, something. Well, that's exactly what I was thinking, although you actually, you know, expressed it much better than I could have. Um, yeah, I really, I really I had the same thought, especially in those scenes where he's not dressed in his red shirt uniform. It, you almost can't tell it's him sometimes. Yeah. Um, that was one of the few places where I thought, why can't they seem to get James Doohan's face? I kept thinking it looked like McCoy. And yeah, oh. very go very goofy looks. Right. But the rest of it, gold. Very good. Yeah. But as far as characters go, the, the one that I was having a hard time with in this issue is Taylor. He's, It's almost like he's been kind of cut out of the story. Hmm. I mean, he has a few lines, but he's not all that important to the story anymore. Um, at this point, yeah. But I mean, that happens in these kind of things, you know. It's one issue. Um, you're right. I'm, I'm flipping through, and there's very little Taylor action. Yeah, um, he says a few things, but not much more. And then he shows up at the end. Yeah. Why do the Starfleet men? Uh, I guess there any women to beam down. Why does the Starfleet crew wear these pretty kind of? Yeah, they're they're sort of like simple villager outfits, but they're not the rags that the humans wear on the planet. You know. Right. Yeah, they look like ratty clothes that you would see today and then, you know, the 2000s. It, it doesn't look like loincloths and rags that that they that these humans would wear. Right, no. exactly. They wouldn't have a vest. Well, the yeah. Humans, yeah. Yeah, but 
Are they really going to be having them run around in loincloths? I mean, the Starfleet folks? Probably not. I, I'd be okay with it. <laughs> well, they came close. I mean, look, uh, between Kirk and Spock, you know, the, the shirts are kind of open uh, yeah. at the top. So we're seeing some some Spock hair and stuff. Some Spock hair. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, some definitions, a peck definition. There yeah, yeah, go. yeah. No, no, I, I hear what you're saying. I just, I, I just felt it didn't. That didn't ring true. It looked like they were on, you know, some planet Catan with from Next Generation or just simple villager clothes. It just right. didn't. It, they would have stood up. They would have worked in the, uh, in the TV series. It would have worked, but it didn't work for the movies. Yeah. I Meaning the Planet of the Apes TV series. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. That they do look like what they wore on on the, the TV, TV series. Show. Yeah, I agree. But yeah. you'll notice how Spock's got a blue shirt and Scotty's got a red shirt. Still. Ah, I you didn't know, notice Weird that. how that worked. Yeah, funny. Clever. Now, what's funny is that when you... Uh, I mean, ju- just talking about what Taylor's wearing, what, what they wear in this time frame, if you go back and you read the Marvel comic adaptation of Beneath the Planet of the Apes, they have Taylor wearing... I swear to goodness, uh, a Fred Flintstone-looking, over-the-shoulder loincloth type thing. So yeah, I just read that recently. So it was just interesting seeing, you know, that completely not right, and this, which looks exactly right for Taylor, you know, all kind of at the same time. Because I was I was looking through both of them at the same time. Right. But uh, so for this one, they nailed that, but. But and it could have gone way wrong with with Taylor too because I've seen it. Does mm. not wear Fred Flintstone clothes. <laughs> <laughs> no, more like Tarzan, like you said. Mm. Right. With underwear somehow. Don't know how that works. <laughs> Anyways, go ahead. Something else. I, I thought. It, I mean, basically, it kind of moves the story right along. I thought it was pretty good. I mean, when I'm reading it, I did not know when I first read it. I did not realize that we were being set up with Scotty's, you know, guffaw of giving too much information away. You know, in retrospect, I can see that that was a uh, a setup and a good one. I, I think for me, what I had a real hard time buying. I understand that the ape does not kill ape rule from the lawgiver. I believe that first is brought up in, in battle, actually, the last movie of the original movies. Um, and that's actually picked up again in the remake of it, which is, you know, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Um, so I get that that is a rule and everything. And then, of course, it was a, a very early broken. I just couldn't buy that the apes had this sort of, like, perfect society where nobody murdered anybody. And it just didn't... See, that didn't ring true to me. The idea that ape kills ape... I can see it being a rule. We have a, you know, if you if you're part of a, you know, a Judeo-Christian world, you have a rule which is, you know, thou shalt not kill, and yet killing still does happen in our society. So I I found that to be, just they they really played that too much. The idea that an ape could kill an ape was like so. I mean, obviously it's horrific if it if a person kills a person, we're all shocked, but it happens. So I'm I'm just surprised that they went that way. Right. You know. Well, they're not saying it doesn't happen. They're just saying that's their number one rule, and I'm sure... Well, yeah, but in, like, in Battle for the Planet of the Apes, that was a big deal at the end of that movie. Right, and, he, and, and the idea that they could never possibly have a war among the apes, because it, it's blasphemous. Yeah. Um, you know, that, because that's... If you can't kill each other, you can't have a war. Um, and, and so they just 
they're all like, there could never be a rebellion. There could never be a, a war amongst the apes. Uh, and and I just that just kept not ringing true to me because I thought, well, sure you can. <laughs> well, well, maybe they in ways were superior to humans then. Yeah, I think that's the point they're trying to make, actually. Yeah. Let me start. Right. Yeah, well, and, the, the, and we'll... Oh, go ahead. Well, Sorry. we'll see what happens in the fifth issue. There you go. But it kind of reinforces some ideas, I think. Yeah. But in, in regards to the no war and, and what Maurice has a, a beef about, I mean... Um, doesn't it say in Beneath the Planet of the Apes that there are apes outside the city that, that are starving and things like that? And then that's brought up here, obviously. But do we know why that that's the case? Why is there some apes so far less well-off than the ones that, that we see in the first movie? I don't think that's ever really explored, as far as I know. Okay. Yeah, but, but maybe it's a question of uh, lack of resources, like Marius is saying. Because right. it is it is post nuclear war a, a, a while forward in the nuclear time frame, but there's a lot of desert, so maybe there's not as much tillable soil. I don't know. Sure, I mean, well, I was thinking, I was thinking he was closer to the forbidden zone, which would maybe still have nuclear fallout or something. Because isn't that the reason why it was forbidden? It is that that's the whole point. The, the forbidden zone, you can't go there because it's unlivable, and and uh, it, and that's that's the question. That I never really, I, I didn't really get um, why, you know, Doctor Zayas in one of these issues is is it the next one where he's sort of like waxing philosophical about they're running out of food and they're being crit the the orangutans are being criticized because people are starving, et cetera, et cetera, and he starts to say maybe we need to move into the forbidden zone and check it out, um, right? So, and then beneath you just watched some of. Beneath, what is the impulse for the big army to go? Is it to go look for Brent? Is that why they all leave and go into the Forbidden Zone? Uh, no, no, they they don't. They're they're they're, look they're looking for other gorillas that they've sent people out into the Forbidden Zone and then they've they've disappeared. Right. And so they keep talking about there being a famine or or something going on out there, and and they're trying to figure out why. Apes would be attacking other apes. That's what I got out of it, and and I wasn't sure if I was, you know, reading too much into it because I just read these books or what. That's why I wanted to ask. Hmm. Well, I have to rewatch. Okay. Okay. Uh, this uh, I, but... I liked this book. It moved the story along. The art was great, um, and uh, I thought the characters were were true. It was really good. Right. Yep. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, my favorite part of the, of all five issues was the Scotty faux pas. I love that he explained the slingshot maneuver. As much as I don't really buy into the slingshot maneuver itself, but the <laughs> fact that he did explain it to him and that we all know that in the third movie, Cornelius and, and Zara go back in time in the little shuttle. So yeah. I thought that was fantastic. It was, you, you saw it coming in a sense. Oh yeah! As soon as he started talking about it, I was like, "Oh my god, that makes so much sense! I love yeah. it!" I just yeah. <laughs> but obviously, just talking a little bit about it isn't enough to be able to do it. No. Right. Something else must be going on in the end, but yeah, that is a nice teeing up. Right. At least they get the idea that way. And we probably need to have a conversation about the whole, you know, how did they get back, um, get the ship up there? But that uh, probably should be after after the next issue. Yeah. Forbidden zone. <laughs> Hello, underwater. <laughs> How did you get it up 
how did you get it out of the water? How did you get it transported out of the Forbidden Zone? Well, whatever. Well, what, we'll was it Taylor's ship they take, or is it uh, Brent's? It's Taylor's. I think they actually make reference to that oh, okay. at one point. And, and, well, we can talk about it now. There is, there is a comic book that really, I really loved. It's from a Boom comic book. Uh, the series was called Cataclysm. And I can't remember the number of, or the issue, but the whole issue is dealing with that very question. How did they get that done? And um, I think they drain the lake and they find, you know, to get the ship. And when they find the ship, they actually fix it with parts taken from Brent's ship. Oh, so they use Brent's because it's the same, you know, model ship, obviously. And Brent, um, they use parts and they and they do it. Now, the piece that doesn't work for me is that the the length of time in Beneath the Planet of the Apes from the time we we finish Planet of the Apes to the end of Beneath is very very short. Actually, yeah. from the time we leave Cornelius and and Zira <clears throat> until the Earth blows up, you really don't have that much time. You have what a day, two days, and this in right. this. They say three days, and that just doesn't for for a for a society that is like uh, fascinated by a paper airplane to have the technology to fix that ship and get it up in the air. I think you yeah. have to suspend your disbelief a bit. Right. Right. And not only that, that's probably just the capsule, right? That's probably not the part that actually was able to leave Earth's atmosphere. Mm. So right. No. No solid rockets. Right. Exactly. So I don't. Yeah. So you think. Yeah, there's lots of holes in the possibility of them doing that. In, in the comic book, which again was a valiant effort, you know, to try to explain how this might have been, which is really kind of an impossible task. Earlier, before the recording started, we were talking how in Star Trek they did the same thing with the comic book that tried to explain the difference in the look mm -hmm. of Khan and how they did a really admirable job, but it's such a difficult task to make that workable. It was the same thing with the ship taking off. I remember that they took that capsule and they had it on a launch pad that was sort of like built, you know, like kind of jury-rigged um, to, to answer that very same question. But it's definitely, you know, worth looking up. Um, I'm, I can kind of look to see what the the actual number. It was like a 12-issue series and it was somewhere in there and the whole issue dealt with Dr. Milo and getting that ship in the in the air. Huh. That's very interesting. Hmm. So so the launch pad, was it like 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 a big tree that was bent over and tied <laughs> to the ground and they put the capsule on top of it and just kind of cut the rope? <laughs> Is that what they did? I don't remember. I think you're being facetious. No, I wouldn't do that. Not Ken. Okay, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just, just real quick about the timeline. I just watched the at least the beginning of uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes and they don't make any reference to how long has happened. I mean, how much time has passed between the first movie and the second movie? Because it sh it starts with her, you know, with Nova showing up, and then in flashbacks you see that she's spent some time with with Taylor, and he gave her his ID chip and things like that before he disappeared. But it doesn't say that it has to have been you know, immediately after the events of the first movie, right? Well, that's really good, actually. That's a, that is, that's helpful, because you're right. I always just assume that Brent shows up pretty much right after, you know, Taylor disappears, but there's no guarantee that. It could have been months, years. Right, you but in, in saying that, it is odd that in the comic book they do date it. In the, in the comic adaption, it says that it's been three days. 
Mm, which right. then I find funny that in this comic book, well, well, we'll find out next issue that again three days plays a big factor into the timeline in between events between these these two movies. Right. Hmm. So I, I don't know. know if that's just a weird coincidence or what, but I kind of like the idea of of you don't really know how much time Nova and and Taylor had spent together between before he disappeared. I wonder how Hanley deals with this in the timeline of the Planet of the Apes. I should go look that up, and then we'll know. Yeah, you you should have had that with you, with pages <laughs> open. Because there's multiple times that would be handy. I will get back to you on that question. Okay. But what about the listeners? They're not going to know. Well, you have more shows. You could tell them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a guest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a guest on this ship. I ain't driving. <laughs> Unless it's going really well, and then I'll take credit. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay. Right. So, hey, what did you think that one was called? You said it was catechism. Cataclysm. Catechism. Catechism. That that would be a little different. That would be a different show. <laughs> a little less excitement, odds are. Well, you learned about the sacred scrolls. <laughs> well, actually, that would that would actually fit in. That would work. The birth of the lawgiver. Have they ever actually addressed that? Who he actually is? Just in battle, isn't he? Isn't he the the guy at the end, in the beginning, that books it, that's talking oh, about Oh, yeah, the book, the book ending guy? Is he, or is he talking about the lawgiver, or is he the lawgiver? I think he is the lawgiver. Well, okay, so um, the, the lawgiver is the statue, right? With the little tear coming out of the eye? Isn't that the lawgiver? No? Yeah, that's him. Yeah. I mean, that looks like Cornelius to me, but... Or Rowdy God, McDowell, it's anyway. A, it's an orangutan, isn't it? I thought it was a chimp. I don't know. Clearly, we back didn't and look at it again. Yeah, yeah, boy, <laughs> boy, we put ourselves forward as experts. Huh. Well, actually, well, in, as Star Trek experts, but even that were. And, you know, and number right. four, they have that. They have a picture of the statue. I, I knew they had it in, in one issue. It's four. Yeah, and it looks like an orangutan. It looks like Doctor Zayas. Okay, well, is that the end or the beginning? Uh, no, it's in that two-page spread when Cornelius is like, "Oh, we ape can't attack ape." And and it shows a picture of the lawgiver with a volcano behind him. Okay. The statue well, of the lawgiver, not not the real lawgiver. Yeah, mm. yeah. And doesn't it have like one tear coming out or something? Yeah, always. Like at the end of uh, battle. Well, you know, ba- battle for the Planet of the Apes. Um, the 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 person that plays that is John Huston, who's a you know pretty famous. Oh yeah, uh, director actor from way back. Yeah, and yeah. director. Yeah. And um and he indeed is the lawgiver. So we we have actually met him. Okay. So. Go here. And he's an orangutan. Right. Okay. Cool. All right, anyways. Well, okay. shall we move on to the Oh, do we want to talk about the essay in this one? I I do. Yeah. So, another day in a Gould essay. I thought it was pretty cool. This one's titled Chambers. John Chambers. Yeah. Yeah, I liked this one a lot. I thought this was Yeah, a nice this one choice. was cool. So, John Chambers a groundbreaking makeup artist and many other things in his life before he came to Hollywood and not only apparently did he come up with Spock's ears and mm. uh, a lot of the makeup for Planet of the Apes movies but he was also apparently he helped the CIA yeah with, uh, with, with yeah with like makeup so as the CIA had people in, in foreign lands to some degree they were some people were actually deployed with like makeup kits or some something like that that were devised by John Chambers, which is really 
really interesting. And it, there go the Chambers, John Chambers, James Bond reference in the in the title. Hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I watched a show not too long ago, and um, it, it was a Hollywood memorabilia show, mm-hmm. and you know they they find memorabilia and then they put it up for auction, and they had this makeup kit um, that had they thought it was a John Chambers makeup kit for a movie. Mm-hmm. So they kept going through it, and it was like, you know, a fake mustache, you know, uh, all, uh, a wig, you know, all this just normal facial stuff. No no Spock ears or anything. Mm-hmm. And so they were trying to figure out what movie it was, and then they found out that it was it was an actual uh, CIA kit that, you know, one of the ones they actually had in the field. Mm-hmm. So they did go ahead and put it up uh, for auction, and it went for, like, huge numbers. They were expecting, you know, nothing because it wasn't, it wasn't didn't have any movie memorabilia attached mm-hmm. to it, but it it went for big big money because of the CIA sure uh, spy game type stuff. So hmm. yeah, I, I, he, that's interesting. And then they then this essay talks about the the events in Argo, which I thought were good. Hmm. So if you hadn't seen the movie Argo, uh, it spoiled it for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amazing. And of course, so he's your. Your great uncle or something, Donovan? Or... I do not think we're related. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I didn't even make that connection. There. Okay. All right. Shall we go on to five? Let's do it. I'm going to be doing the synopsis for five because I offered to give one of the two boys a, a, a week off and they had to fight it out and uh, Ken won. So Yay! Yay me, I'm number one. Number one. <laughs> IDW and Boom Star Trek Planet of the Apes, the Primate Directive number five from April of 2015. There are three covers. The first by Rachel Scott, colored by Charlie Kirchhoff, is a clever image of Spock and Dr. Zaius engaged in a game of 3D chess, with the chess pieces being characters from both franchises. The subscription cover by J.K. Woodward is an intense image of a fierce gorilla in full military uniform in front of an explosion with one foot on the body of James T. Kirk while raising a bat lip with both hands high above his head while shouting in triumph. The R.I. cover is a photo montage in the gold key style with Zero Cornelius and Zaius layered over a larger image of Spock at his station on the bridge of the Enterprise. The credits for the book are the same as the previous issue. Picking up with Ursus in the crosshairs, we find that the shooter is Kor, but before he makes the shot, Kor's gun is shot out of his hand by Taylor. Our landing party, on horseback, attack the Klingons. Oddly, there are no firearms, phasers, or disruptors, just fisticuffs and knives. The Enterprise crew wins, but before they can take the Klingons prisoner, the Klingons are beamed away. Kirk signals Scott on the ship, to keep an eye out for the Klingon ships and to beam them up as soon as they find them. Meanwhile, Ursus and Marius engage in hand-to-hand combat on the battlefield while the armies watch. While broiling, they discuss religion and philosophy, and in particular the law, ape shall not kill ape. Ursus wins and decides not to kill Marius, but as he walks away, Marius points a gun at him. That gun, too, is knocked from the shooter's hand by a soldier from the rebel army who throws an object. This act turns the rebel army over to Ursus's side, and the rebellion is done. Cornelius reunites with Zira and tells her the visitors are leaving. Kirk and Spock discuss the matter, trying to figure out what the Klingon's game is at this point. They ask Zira and Cornelius to keep quiet 
and they agree it's for the best. They also decide to leave the guns that Kor has given to Marius. They invite Taylor to come with them, but he wants to stay and asks to be beamed to the very spot they found him. He refuses supplies, finds his horse, and presumably can pick up the story right from the beginning of Beneath the Planet of the Apes. As they say their goodbyes, Scotty signals and tells them they found the Klingon ships and beams the Enterprise crew up. Kor is hailed and explains that he wants to finish their battle in space as warriors without the Organian peace treaty to stop them. Kirk chases them for three days and finds them hiding in the rings of Saturn. Two of the three Klingon ships are destroyed, and the third heads for the time-space portal, but before Kor's ship can get through, there is a massive explosion. Note that Chekhov gives an obligatory scream, and Spock reports that a massive cobalt bomb has ignited the Earth's entire atmosphere. Kirk wonders if they caused it, but continues into the portal after Kor, determined to destroy the portal from the other side. Meanwhile, inside the miraculously resurrected Icarus, Cornelius, Zira, and Dr. Milo, out for a test run, witness the destruction of Earth. Since they can't land, they decide to use the ship for time travel. Not knowing how to achieve this, Cornelius pulls out a Starfleet tricorder and hands it to Dr. Milo, showing him the directions for achieving a slingshot effect described to him by Chief Engineer Montgomery Scott. The end. So that's how that happened. Yeah. In Escape from Planet of the Apes. Never knew. Yeah. They did, they, they was, I, I like the fact that they took it on. I yeah. That was good. Very good. And, and do they actually explain in Beneath that it's the atmosphere is burned off? Don't they just sort of say, you know, and now there is a dead planet? <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. right. <laughs> it's a really kind of a bummer ending. <laughs> oh, you ain't kidding. <laughs> I do like seeing the the artwork of the Earth blowing up here. It's, yeah, they did a really good job with that. I thought. You know. Although all the humans on the on the ship seem to take it pretty well. I mean, it, it's even if it wasn't their Earth, it still looked a whole heck of a lot it's, like their Earth. It's an Earth, and they're all like, "Meh, it's gone." Yeah, yeah. And, and I I did not remember at all that the entire Earth was affected by that nuclear explosion. I thought it was just localized. So I guess they did do a voiceover or something in the movie, but I did not remember that. It, it so was. It was seeing... like a really... It, it, it was really kind of lame. They just showed the planet out in space, and they just said, now around the sun on the third planet, it's dead. And it, it, this makes more sense because they explained that the atmosphere burns up because of the explosion. I always thought, how could this one bomb inside, you know, what is it... Uh, the cathedral in New York. Yeah, it's um, it's it. Is it St. John the Divine Cathedral or one of those? St. Patrick's Cathedral, I think it is. Um, how how could that have destroyed the whole planet? Um, yeah. but the idea of it it set off some kind of a chain reaction that burned up the atmosphere. Well, uh, I can buy that. Well, yeah. I mean, what Chekhov called it a cobalt bomb. Yeah, uh, spot. a cobalt, so, or yeah. somebody called it a cobalt nuclear bomb. It's like, oh, it is. Is that supposed to be some special kind of nuclear bomb that we don't have today? Because obviously, because of Hiroshima, we know that the Earth's not going to have a, you know, a chain reaction. Yeah, I don't know. I thought that was probably so. a thing that other people would know what that meant. I didn't. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, do they do the the mutants in Beneath the Planet of the Apes call it that? A cobalt uh, bomb? 
Maybe. I know they, they, they worship it. They call it the sacred, the holy bomb. And it shows up in battle, too. Isn't that bomb in battle for the planet of the apes? The holy, oh, is the it? holy bomb well, of Antioch. Yes. There are two, there are two versions of battle. Um, and at least in one of them, when they go to the city to find tapes of um, Caesar's dad, Cornelius, um, they they encounter you know the the mutants were at that point not you know faceless but and there there's reference to the bomb, I believe, because mm. I watched it not too long ago. All right, well now I got to rewatch that one because I don't remember that. That well, what do you mean about two versions? Uh, for Battle of the Planet of the Apes, there are two different versions of that movie. There's the theatrical release, and then there's another one that's a little longer. So is it like a director's on the Blu-ray. Or something? You can get both cups. Yeah, I don't know if they call it the director's cup, but both versions are on the Blu-ray edition, um, at least that I have in the big one with the timeline on it. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. did not know that. So that book of the timeline, does it take into account the reboots? Or does it only do Not yet. With... No, I think it was written before there was. In fact, I asked him via uh, if he would be doing that, and he basically wrote back and said, you know, when someday when I have time, that's on his list. So he has not put in the reboots. But I just not mean my... even even like the just the Tim Burton one. I, I think there is a way that the Tim Burton one is referenced, um, but I can't remember how what his resolution to that was. Um, but I know he deals with it on some level. Well, wouldn't that be confusing, though? I mean, you have one continuity, and then you have the reboots that, in some ways, could be total overlap, and in some ways not. And and then now you got a third set of movies that you're going to overlay on the first timeline. It's yeah, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I mean, you might have to do the kind of Star Trekky thing where you say this is a different, you know, timeline, different reality. I don't know. Um, yeah. But uh, I can't remember how he deals with the uh, the, re- the the Tim Burton, Tim Burton movie, but I know he does. I remember reading it and him and thinking, okay, that works. <laughs> um, so it was definitely something he took on. Cool. Yeah. So that that's one of the missed opportunities I thought this story could have potentially had. Um, they have a portal that can go into different alternate universes. Mm-hmm. I would have loved like some throwaway frame maybe the last picture of the book or something like that and and show the Chris Pine Kirk or something somehow <laughs> with the Tim Burton or, or even the, the newer uh, Planet of the Apes uh, type movie you know just, just a throwaway thing that you know in, in that alternate universe this is happening too but a little different it would have just been a cute or not cute but just a cool little throwaway frame or, yeah, I think that's a great idea. I, I mean, probably just didn't occur to them, but I think that would have really worked. Because you do have two, both franchises, we talked about this last week, both franchises have uh, been rebooted. You know, movies and been rebooted and have TVs and animated shows and all that. So I would have loved that. Maybe in the future we'll have a reboot crossover. <laughs> <laughs> if this sold well enough, which I think it did, uh, that, that could happen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the things that I noticed about this whole series is this was, to me, it felt like IDW, this is an IDW book. If you look at the ads in the back, right. it's all. it feels like just another issue of an IDW book, and they used Planet of the Apes and threw logo on there, and they have a boom editor who obviously cleared stuff. But this doesn't feel like um, you know, a boom IDW mashup. It feels like 
IDW got permission to use the Planet of the Apes um, right. franchise. And and it, it, you know, and you think about it, the, really the the perspective is Star Trek, who go in and find Planet of the Apes stuff and get interfere and in, into that world, and then they go back to their own world. It's not it's not the other way around. You know what I mean? Right. I just, I just thought it was interesting that, that, that it, this is clearly an um, IDW work, even though it's credited with both. Right. Sure. And, well, and, it, it, oh, go ahead. And everybody is from IDW except for the, uh, what, co-editor from right. Boomerang. Right. Right. And, and I don't know. I don't follow. I, I happen to read that Cataclysm book only because I found it in the comic book store, and when I thumbed through it, I saw that it was the story of how Dr. Milo got the the Icarus up. And by the way, I don't think it's ever really called the Icarus. I don't know why I called it that. It's somehow that's in popular um, imagination. It's been referred to as the Icarus, but I don't mm. think it's ever actually says that. Um, except in the reboot. Yeah, I was going to say, talk, in the reboot, I think they call it In that. the reboot, they use that that term, but it was called that, you know, before. Maybe maybe there's a novelization or something. Or, uh, or maybe it was in the original script, but... Could be. But it was never really said in the final movie. Hmm. It kind of makes sense. I mean, Icarus would be a great image. I mean, that, you know, that whole myth about flying too close to the sun and, mm-hmm. you know, trying to trying to touch God and uh, end up and the wings melt and the person crashes to the ground <laughs> and finds yeah, an earth yeah. taken over by monkeys. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> how that goes. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, as far as the crossover goes, uh, this this really reminded me of back in the '90s when DC and Marvel would do their crossovers, and you would have a Batman Spider-Man book released by DC and you know it really felt like a Batman book with with Spider-Man in it and then like a couple of months later they would come out with a Spider-Man Batman book released by Marvel and then there you know the art style and everything really felt like a Spider-Man book with Batman in it Mm -hmm. this really felt like an IDW comic and I'm hoping that if this really does well and and the partnership's still there then maybe IDW or uh, maybe Boom will come out with one Mm-hmm. That it'll be all their people, and uh, you know, Sarah Glados Gatos can be the uh, best co-editor on that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Is Boom is Boom a pretty, you know, uh, well-known, reputable, successful uh, company? It is because it's, uh, and, and hopefully I'm not wrong, but I think it's owned by Marvel. Oh, it, actually, it's owned by. It was originally owned by Disney before Disney owned Marvel. Oh. Uh, so unless okay. unless they spun it off, unless Disney let go of it at some point, um, I think it's still owned by Disney. Hmm. Interesting. Didn't know. I that. mean, how much could it be worth? I mean, for Disney, it's like, ah, yeah, we'll hold on to that. Eh, pocket change. <laughs> yeah. Right, because it's basically Disney's way of doing, you know, all the franchise type comics. So they did a Die Hard series. They've done RoboCop. Oh, really? They do. Uh, Planet of the Apes, obviously. Uh, wait, all wait. their stuff was Die lights Hard. Oh, that's yeah. There, there's been a couple of Die Hard miniseries. Huh. Okay. Mm. Uh, in Farscape, they did a lot of Farscape Ooh, stuff. Farscape. Yeah. Well, I like Farscape. No, they they they're good stuff. I I enjoy everything I've read from them. Nice, nice. Yeah, I wasn't meaning to impugn their work. I just don't know it. You know. Right. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with them either. I think you're right, Ken, though. If it was like, if Disney does own Boom, it's probably like having, you know, Connecticut Avenue on the Monopoly board. Like, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't cost much. Oh, yeah, throw in the bag. Yeah, Yeah. keep someone else from having it. Uh, (laughs) 
All right. So w- one of my last comments is back to the clothing thing. Um, what I really wanted to see is them do like they did on the, the Enterprise incident or whatever, where they have they change Kirk's DNA so that he looks like a Romulan. Why couldn't they have done something and, and made them look like chimpanzees or something and, and then have yeah. them there? <laughs> <laughs> you, you one of those, those uh, John Chambers kits. <laughs> exactly. No, but I'm saying I when I was when I first started reading this, I was like, oh, that'll be really cool if that's the the way they go, you know, have Kirk as a monkey. Uh, well, but, I mean, yeah, but... hey, sorry, I hate I hate to uh, offend people. <laughs> <laughs> Our primate cousins. Yeah. Well, how much? Well, how much time would it take them to whip that up, though? I mean, I know it's Star Trek and they have amazing technology, but just a little hypo spray, I'm sure. <laughs> There you go. Right. If they do, if they do it again, that's a fun little um, idea to sort of put our characters into, you know, ape costume. Right. In the uh, ongoing comic series, wasn't there one where Starfleet people were down there, doctors, researchers at some planet, and they were trying to make, they tried to look like the inhabitants. Right. But they had the, hol- the holographic thing. They had something going, but yeah. they could still tell the smell the- or something. Who watches the Watchers? Something like that was what the episode was called. Oh, okay. That was the issue. Okay, cool. Oh, you're talking about an issue. I'm sorry. I, yeah, I and in, in, in one of the ongoing issues, not too long ago, they they had an episode, uh, a story where they were wearing holographic costumes. Oh, it was the uh, it was the crossover one because it was the female Kirk, and ah. she was wearing the holographic costume so that she looked like one of the aliens that they were visiting. Ah. Oh, was that? Oh, that's right. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Jane that Kirk. Was it. Jane Kirk, yes. <laughs> yes. Captain Jane Kirk. Yeah. Okay, so I thought it was a pretty uh, nice tribute to Leonard Nimoy. I was page in the back. Same thing. Yeah, not only that, I also wanted to, yes, I thought it was great that they did that. I was surprised they could get it in so fast. Right. Um, and I wanted to say that I also really appreciated the fact that you guys did that. You threw that little... Uh, prelude into one of your episodes just about the time that Nimoy passed. I thought that was touching. And uh, much like the um, essay in the back of this book where he says a lot of people are saying this is affecting me a lot more than I thought it would. Exactly. I I would put myself in that category. I was actually traveling with a friend, um, my dear friend, and um, we were eating at a, in, we were in Norway, and the, <laughs> it was so weird. The, the name of the, the restaurant was Vulcanfisk. And um, <laughs> it was, and and then if you look if you looked at the sign, there's actually something that's very very evocative of a Starfleet insignia or shield, and yeah. uh, I don't think they meant it that way. It was just it just happened to look like that, and um, I, we were sitting there, and he was you know diddle around on his phone, and all of a sudden he reached over across the table and he grabbed my hand, and I looked at him and I said I could see something was up, and he said I've got some bad news. And he had one of those looks on his face that I thought he was going to say something funny, like something silly. And he said, no, no, this really is bad news. And I sort of waited, and he said, and he said Leonard Nimoy passed away. And I couldn't believe it. I, I started crying there in the middle of this public restaurant. Not, <laughs> not, weep, not weeping uncontrollably, but, you know, I was, like, really hit. And it took me a while to kind of, like, process it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It was, it was yeah. big. Ken, Ken is the one who told me. I mean, I knew that he was in the hospital a few days before. But I hadn't heard anything, so I was like, okay, well, I guess he's, you know, I'm sure he's recovered by now. 
And then I was at the grocery store, and then Ken texted me that he'd passed away. And I'm telling you, I was just in such a, a funk, and just walking through the store, just like, like it, was, like he was somebody that I actually knew, you know? Right. Passed away. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it was nice that they did this tribute. I haven't read the most recent um, ongoing issue yet to know if they they did that there as well, but. Um, Still, it was it was good, and I appreciated when I was listening to the episode that you guys did that you threw that in there. It was nice. Well, okay. yeah, I think our I think we could have been a lot more eloquent, but we at least we wanted to say something about it. Mm. Yeah. So it definitely, uh, I agree with you. Those words that Dana Gould used in there about a lot of people saying it affected me a lot more than I thought it would. How yeah. true? How yeah. true? Yeah. Um, I think we used almost those exact same words when we were uh, talking about it, uh, Donovan and I. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I remember where I was when I heard that DeForest Kelly died. I mean, that was, what, 15 years ago? Um, and I remember I was standing at the place where I work at the camp, and somebody told me, and I was just dumbfounded. So, I don't know, it just, just feels like the end of an era when that yeah. happens. So. Right. Well, two two of the big three, gone. Yeah, and Scotty, you know. Well... So. True, true. But yeah, yeah, even though he's, but, wow. Hmm. Yeah, I liked on the cover, the the gold key cover, they, they do have a Leonard Nimoy 1931 and 2015 on there. That, yep. But I thought it was a nice little yep. nod. I hadn't noticed true. that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Right, yeah, and, and the rest of Ghoul's essay, Happy Trails is the title of it. Uh, it's all about endings, so he talks about uh, the almost ending of Star Trek, the original series, at the end of season two, and then the writing campaign that brought that back. And then he talked about the eventual end of it in se- end of season three, and then talked about how all this, you know, the afterlife of Star Trek, uh, the right. show that you know, the show that would not die. And then he also talks about the end of the Apes series with Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Uh, that was being tagged as the final Apes film, and then again another property that wouldn't die, um, and then he talks about Leonard Nimoy. You know, right. obviously that's a little bit more final. We won't have any right. afterlife that we'll know about anyway for mm-hmm. the actor, but at least the character lives on in uh, Quinto, and who knows, maybe other actors after him. Right, right. I'm worried that Quinto's going to do this third film, which I think is what they're contractually obligated to, and that'll be it. Yeah, I, just have, I have a feeling. I don't know why. Just you know, He refused to go back and do his character for Heroes. You hear about that? They're going to do a oh, re... Oh, yeah, I heard I they're going to redo it, but he won't do... Oh, yeah. interesting. He won't yeah. do Sky, Skyler? Nope. Or Siler? Siler. He opted out. Well, he also that... said he was done after a couple seasons on American Horror. He said, you know, I think I'm done with that, too. So, yeah. or at least it, done with playing a, a homicidal maniac, anyway. <laughs> well, he's also following the footsteps of Nimoy, who you know was the, always the holdout, wasn't right. going to do it. We didn't, didn't want to, you know. I'm actually reading a book about the first um, film being made right now in the whole Phase Two book. It's a kind of a fan based book. It's really thick, and it's um, it was written. It, it's basically interviews with cast and crew of the first film. And uh, it's it was written 
at the time of the first film, and it never got published. Oh, so wow. it's sort of yeah, so it's really very interesting. Um, and it's one of those kind of you know you read a couple of pages and then you put it down, and you look at something else, and then you come back to it. Uh, much like the timeline book I was telling you about, you kind of you can't sit down and read it cover to cover. You kind of have to take a little bit at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, anyway, I just I uh, it's very interesting because Nimoy was the one that was like, I'm not doing it again. And then they how they convinced him and how he basically you know, sort of decided to be the the artistic conscience, I think they called it, of that film. And he had some very specific things that he had put in there himself. So, hmm. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's even a... Or I, I read somewhere, I think, again, online, where there was a, a note from him about what how he envisioned the whole Colinar thing. Um, so, oh, yes. Yeah, and, and, and Spock trying to, you know, push away all the emotion and not being successful and all that is all. That was Nimoy's idea. Yeah. Huh. Cool. That's cool. Mm. Well. Mm. All right. Okay. So, interesting five issues, interesting story, great crossover. Yeah. I mean, there was so much potential for screwing it up, and they really didn't. They really did. And, you know, I, I could see through almost every part of this storyline incredible love for both franchises and excitement and and care that was given it wasn't just like oh let's take some money and throw this thing together the right. the artists that were involved it, it, they were involved you know and i appreciate that i really do right now i will say that the resolution was a little anticlimactic but other than that well, they had to bring it back to. I mean, they they had to bring it back to where we knew it was going to be. And you know, the whole Taylor saying, "I'm not going to come back with you. I'm going to stay and fight for my place." And because they had to put him back. Oh yeah, know, that, that's like, fine. Yeah, you're talking it, about it's, the, it's the just, space it, battle. Uh, no, I'm talking about the mano y mano or gorilla e gorilla battle. That's that that resolved the main problem. I mm. I, uh, I I alluded to it. I think uh, earlier in this episode. Uh, I was expecting a bigger knockdown drag out to happen than what happened, which is basically the two gorillas go toe to toe and settle things. Well, no, they don't settle things. One betrays the other finally after one has the nobility to to let him live, and uh, he gets you know thwarted by that. But yeah, I, well, I hear your point. Well, it was their battle that ultimately settled things. Right. And also, by the way, a point I was alluding to earlier in the episode. It did end up being a gorilla who who upheld the lawgiver's laws against uh, a, a bad gorilla that was, you know, more like uh, like the guy at the end of uh, Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Um, so in the end, they did uphold their laws, and they, well, pretty much didn't kill each other. So mm. that's good. Good for the yeah. good for the apes. Um, I'm going to throw out a, a plug for um, Hasline Books. If you are interested in more, go to www.hasslein.books.com. Hasline Books. I think that's how you say it. I don't know. Maybe it's cool. That sounds right. I mean, that yeah. almost sounds like we're getting getting paid for that. That's a great plug. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just I think that these again, these are guys that are sort of uh, around the edge of um, you know, and some of them are very involved in the IDW stuff and. Uh, I I think they're doing a good job. I, I I like their work. 
So there yeah, you go. They, they do other things other than... Yeah. Yeah. I, I, got, I, back to the future stuff, they've done a similar kind of timeline and uh, some James Bond stuff. and um, Yeah, it's good. Doctor Who. They're doing a Doctor Who book. Cool. cool. Which yeah. I owe my yeah. Doctor... I owe my love of Doctor Who to you two. You're the ones that turn me on to it. So. Oh, cool. Good. I'm just full of praise today, aren't I? Yes. yes. Very complimentary. Enjoy it while I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you come back every week. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just, just remember about all the things he's pointed out we've gotten totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do that publicly. Yeah. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> oh, well. All right. Anything else for these issues? Nada. Nope. I think it's great. All right, so uh, I don't even know what we're doing next week. <laughs> Ken, do you know? I can't wait for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so next week we are going to be doing Wildstorm Voyager Planet Killer issues one through three. Which is the full series, so. I'll, I'll listen to that episode in the car. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. All right, well, thank time. you. Thank you, Brian. And oh. uh, yeah. anytime you want to come back, you just let us know. Oh, I'll be back. It's fun. Oh, I'll be back. I'll be back. <laughs> Good. We'll have to do a gold key here pretty soon. We need we need to do some more uh, acting. Yeah. All right. We we need to get through more gold keys. <laughs> <laughs> and the acting's nice too. Yeah, you know, I have to say this one one thing. I have to say, you're right about the gold keys, but I think that gold key, as I look as I review them, I think they got better as they went on. Yeah, I, think I, I, I agree. I could put that out. The, the early ones were obviously just totally whacked, but um, I think there was an effort made on some level. You know, they, they're, they're a little more readable as you go forward. But even the whacked one, I, I've, I've always enjoyed. I mean, the Voodoo well, Planet, I thought, had it had its place. It, it, it was an interesting it, it has a na- it. They have their naive charm. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And I love the Enterprise with the exhaust. okay all right well let's close up shop and we'll be back next week with uh, star trek voyager planet killer one through three excellent thanks for joining us everybody on the review thank you for listening to star trek comic book review all star trek stories and characters are copyrighted cbs studios incorporated All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, stcomic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.